Tell you what, can we just pray as we transition into a time of opening God's word together? Father, you are, you are a good God. Lord, I'm just taken back at the words that we sing this morning that reflect what your word teaches. Lord, that there is not a single one of us that is beyond your saving. Lord, I thank you, God, that in your infinite mercy and wisdom and grace, that you have taken dirty vessels and you've made them clean. As we study your word this morning, let us, let us confidently approach your word as truth for our lives so that we can know that you're calling us to be faithful to you as you clean us. It's in your name we pray. Amen. We're continuing this morning to study through the book of Genesis, and it'll be this week and next week will be our last in this series of Redeeming Genesis. We're going to stop at chapter 11, which is fitting if you're doing certain Sunday school curriculum and certain Sunday school material, you're picking up with Genesis chapter 12. And so uh, you get to continue the story of Genesis on uh, even after the sermon series has concluded. This morning, we're going to look at uh, the Noahic Covenant in Genesis chapter 8 and into chapter 9. The Noahic covenant. It's a series we're entitling Redeeming Genesis as a reminder that these are, these are real people and real events that happen in history, not just some imagined coloring book or stuffed animal ark, but this is a real person in Noah. We're going to redeem the fact that this isn't just a story. This is history, but we're also looking at it from the, the perspective and the point of view that, that God is speaking redemption through these first 11 chapters of Genesis. It's, it's, not, just, it's not just familiar stories or, or bedtime stories or, or, or tales that we've been told. This is a message with a purpose. And the purpose on every single page is that God wants to redeem his creation, you. He, God wants to redeem you into a relationship with him. This morning, we're going to look at the covenant that God makes with Noah. Now, if you've been tracking along with us the first uh, eight or so chapters of the book of Genesis, we, we've got the creation of everything perfect. God makes humanity. He places them in a garden, and there's nothing wrong. It is amazingly clear and perfect. God literally walks with Adam and Eve. Not, not spiritually walks with Adam and Eve. He's literally present with them. It's not this foreign idea that God might be around somewhere in the garden. It says he walks with Adam and Eve. Everything is exactly how God created it to be. No sin, no pain, no death, no sorrow, no burdens, no depression, no anxiety. Everything is perfect. And by chapter 3, Adam and Eve decide to look at the perfect creation around them and wonder, is God holding out and have something better for me? And so through some deception from the serpent, but really in their own hearts, they take the fruit, they eat that God told them not to eat. And sin breaks this perfect world. Now there's a promise, and this is going to be important for the rest of the Bible, and we've talked about it a little bit every week. There's a promise in Genesis chapter 3 that the serpent who deceived Adam and Eve, the one who is, is bent towards ruining perfection and has thus far succeeded, will be crushed by a descendant of Adam. There's one coming, right, that is going to restore and redeem Adam and Eve back to God. And Adam and Eve get all excited when they have their firstborn son, a man named Abel. Then they have another boy, Cain. 
And what we learned in chapters 4 and 5 is that while, while they wanted Abel to be the descendant to crush sin and bring them back into a perfect relationship with God, he's not the one. Cain kills Abel. Right? So not only is Abel not the one, but Cain's not the one. He's more wicked than Adam and Eve were. Right? His descendants get perfectly wicked, right, to where they're, they're so detestable that, that they're bragging about murdering young men. And so maybe it's through this man, Seth, and you, you look at Seth's line, and it, it comes, and it's getting better, and people are starting to turn and, and call on the name of the Lord, but they look at the world around them, and, and in Genesis, God looks and he says, the heart of man is deceitfully, deceitfully wicked and full of violence. And so while the seed of Seth, the descendants of Seth, should be saving the world, instead God says, I'm going to destroy it. There's nothing good. That phrase that God uses about man's heart being full of violence is a reminder that sin has far-reaching implications. It goes from eating a piece of fruit to murder in a matter of one generation, and it gets worse. And so God singles out one man's family, Noah. Noah, you and your wife, your three sons and their, their wives are all going to board an ark that you're going to build along with two of each animal seven of some of the animals but but a male and female from every single land animal and bird on this boat now we talked about how ridiculous that sounds but how actually when you start to study a little bit about how it worked god probably told him to build a boat that was bigger than what he needed and and again we gave you a resource last week you can come and see me if you want to have answers to some of those strange questions that that really god knows what he's doing they get on the boat, and for, for a period of time, the rain falls down and covers every surface of the earth, every mountaintop, every tree, every bit of it is covered with water. And we see the agony of humanity destroyed. But maybe, maybe this Noah will be the one. Maybe he's finally the one that God is saving and resetting everything in. And so this morning, we're going to look at the covenant God makes with Noah. And this idea that, that probably even Noah had that maybe I'm the seed. Maybe I'm the descendant. See how God is using me to, to reboot and restart creation. There's a lot of, actually, a lot of Eden, Garden of Eden uh, ties into the story of Noah. They, they come down and, and, and you see a lot of similarities to God starting fresh. And you think, maybe Noah's the one. And God does make a covenant with Noah, and we're going to look at that this morning. But before we jump in there, if you believe this about the Bible, before we open up the Bible, if you believe these statements, can you repeat these after me? The Bible is the Word of God. What it teaches, I will believe. What it commands, I will obey. And when it convicts, I will change. We're coming to the Word of God, and we're going to start in verses 18 and 19 of Genesis chapter 8. So Noah went out, once the waters have receded and there's dry land again, Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his son's wife with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird, and everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. The waters are down, and Noah finally is stepping off the boat to restart and get a fresh beginning. You know, it's interesting here. What did Noah take on the ark with him? The Bible says he took two of every kind, right? 
So he takes on the ark, a male and a female of every animal. The kinds enter onto the ark, two of every kind, but what comes off the ark? Don't miss this. This is kind of cool. What comes off the ark? All, everything that moves on the earth went out by families. God's purpose in creation didn't stop on the ark. He took two of every kind, but by the time the waters came down, some of them were more than two, right? God's purpose in creation continues on the ark, and now you already see a being fruitful and multiply that God is about to command already taking place because God's purpose for creation has not stopped. God's judgment did not mean a ceasing of what God created you to be. When God judges us, when God convicts us and, and calls us out of a life of sin, it's not like he says, so stop being human. Stop being you. He says, continue in what I've called you to do. And families come off the ark. We have families coming off the ark. What's the first thing that Noah is going to do when he gets off the ark? I don't know that it'd be the first on your mind, but we're in church, so you're probably thinking, oh, I'd do what Noah did. I don't know that I would be. I think the first thing I would do before we read it when I got off the ark was, was try to find a dry piece of ground. Right? Like It's a little muddy here, God, so let me camp out. Let me find where the best area is. Maybe gather some supplies. I don't even know what kind of vegetation there is. Right? Plants have been destroyed and drowned. I don't know how I'm going to build a fire. Reasonably, maybe they disassembled the ark and used some of those supplies. I don't know. The first thing Noah does when he gets off the ark is not take care of himself, though. Read with me in Genesis 8, 20 through 22. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. When the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease. This is the first mention we have of a burnt offering in all of the Bible. So for some of you, you go, what's the big deal, a burnt offering? The burnt offering is what under Moses would become the offering for repentance of sin, right? Trying to, to be obedient and faithful to God. I, I need forgiveness. There, there's death that is required, blood that has to be shed. And this, for the first time that we read about, Noah says, I'm making an offering to the Lord. This is the first time we see an altar built and a fire made to burn a sacrifice to God. Now, I know Cain and Abel made offerings. They brought them to God. We don't read about an altar. We don't read about them being burnt for the purpose of forgiveness of sins. We, we read about it here with Noah. Noah going, God, I need forgiveness. Noah offers an atonement for humanity's sin. Noah says, on behalf of all the judgment and all the sin that took place, God, I want you to receive this offering. All that's left is my family. Will you forgive us? All that's left is my wife, my children, and their wives. Can you, can you bring us into a right relationship with you? What we read is that Noah's sacrifice pleases God. It says the aroma goes up to God, and it, it pleases him. Now, now, as we read this verse in verse 21, listen to the words of how God responds to this offering. When the Lord smelled the pleasing 
aroma. The Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intentions of man's heart is evil from his youth. Did that burnt offering remove the wickedness of all humanity? It did not. Noah's offering is supposed to be the one. Noah's the seed, right? He got on the boat. But think about how God described the world before the flood. Exceedingly wicked, violent, deceitful. How does he describe it after the flood? The intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. God looks at Noah and his wife and his children and their wives, and he goes, nothing's changed. I've rebooted everything, and you're making an offering to me, but the root problem of sin is still present. This is important for us to understand because Noah was supposed to be the Messiah and the one, but he can't be. He can't be the one because sin remains. I think sometimes we like to, to look and see God use us in some ways. And God, would you, would you save me? And so would you provide some sort of sign or symbol so I know that you're there? And God, would you speak to me? And, and God does this miraculous thing. And you think, okay, I'm good, right? My, my presence in obedience and faithfulness to God has made me right and perfect and clean and I'm good to go. For some people, it works like this. God, I'm going to show up to church on Sunday morning. And Lord, I'm here. So just be happy that I'm here. I'm in the boat. I'm on the ark. I'm doing what you want me to do. I must be good now. Other people who say it's going to be the works that I do. Maybe it's not showing up to church. It's serving or working. God, I'm a good person. I hope little old ladies across the street, I hold the door for people when they come out. If people are in need, I pull up my wallet and I pay for it. God, I'm a good person. I'm doing the things you want me to do so that my problem of sin is gone. And we're reminded that even in Noah's obedience on the ark, even in his sacrifice and his offering, the intention of man's heart is evil. From his youth. There's no action, no work, no thing that we can do that removes sin by ourselves. Noah makes atonement for humanity's sin, but it's temporary. It's in the moment sacrifice. It's God, I'm, I'm offering this to you as an appeasement, but I know it's not ultimately going to be the thing. And so all throughout the Old Testament, there's offering after offering after offering in hopes that this will be the thing that appeases God. And, and it doesn't. Our hearts are still evil from our youth. So what does God do when he receives the offering then? What does God accept when he receives the offering? Well, what we see is, is God reminding and restoring humanity to bear God's image. Humanity is restored to bear God's image. God looks at Noah and says, remember what I told Adam and Eve to do? You keep doing that. It's what you're still called to do. In, in spite of your sin and your wickedness and how evil your own thoughts may be, I've created you with purpose and with reason, and I've got a plan for your life. Look in Genesis 9, 1 through 11, what, what he instructs Noah to do. God said to Noah and his sons, and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. Does this sound familiar? This is exactly what God told Adam and Eve to do when he said, You're created in my image. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. 
He says, fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish in the sea. Into your hands they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. And from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. For whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you be fruitful, and multiply, and increase greatly on the earth, and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds and the livestock and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. God steps back, he smells the offering, and he restores Noah to be an image bearer of God. Noah's given the same responsibility as Adam. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth. Do what you were created to do. It's a reminder that even in our wickedness and sin, God created you with a purpose. We get so wrapped up in one of two things. Either one, we think that we're so great that, that our sins are not important and we forget that we're exceedingly wicked from our youth. And we think we do all the right things and we have all the right things and everything is just fine and dandy and God doesn't need to worry about us. We'll be at church. We'll be at Sunday school even. We might even show up on Wednesday night occasionally. Goodness knows we'll be good board members. We'll serve the church and, and we're going to do what's right. God has to remind us and humble us. You're exceedingly wicked. The other danger is to think I'm so wicked and dirty and unclean that God has no use for me. People typically find themselves in one of these two camps. I'm too good for God or I'm not good enough. In this passage, God is restoring Noah. He's saying there's something in you and what is in you is not any good work or any good deed. It's the fact that I created you in my image. I love you and you have purpose. You have meaning. You're not just destined to wander the earth. You're not just existing and dying and being done. God looks at Noah and says, the same thing I gave to the perfect Adam, I've created you with that same exact purpose. God goes on to say he values all life, all life. He talks about them being able to eat animals now. By the way, pre-flood, no eating animals. Wasn't allowed. Did they do it? Yeah, they were sinful and wicked, but God did not allow it. He said, eat green plants for food. I've given that to you. After the flood, he says, listen, I've destroyed the plants. I'm opening it up for you. You go get you a steak. All right, go ahead. Go eat you some beef. Um, at this point, there's no dietary laws, so you need some bacon. Get some bacon because that's not in there yet. You, you go and just all the animals on the earth have at it, but... Drain the blood out. Don't, don't eat the blood, because life is in the blood. And God says, well, I'll, I'll give you food for nourishment. I value life too much. All life, it says, all life, there'll be a reckoning for. 
You need to make sure you are not wasteful with your killing of animals and eating of meat because God values life. But even more importantly, he says, I value man's life even more than the rest of creation. I value the life of, of human beings more than anything else I've created. That's why he specifically says, if man's blood is shed by man's hand, his blood will be shed. There's a reckoning, God says, a life for a life. Why? Because God cares about you. He created you in his image. He has purpose and meaning for your life. You're fallen, you're broken, you're imperfect, and your heart is exceedingly wicked from the days of your youth, and God says, I still want to use you. I still want you to be the one to be faithful and obedient. And so God offers a sign to Noah, a sign to continue to be merciful. God reveals a promise of mercy with, with a symbol that to this day we look up and we recognize and we see. In verses 12 through 17, God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you with every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I've set my bow, that is a rainbow, in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I'll remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature and all flesh, and the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I'll see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature and all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant that I've established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Genesis chapter 9 is the first time we see this word covenant. Now certainly God had made a covenant with Adam and Eve, but he doesn't call it a covenant. We look back and call it a covenant. This is the first time God says, I'm making a covenant with humanity. As we reboot and restart and restore you to the image of God, as you make this atoning sacrifice, I've got a covenant I want to make with you. And if you're not familiar with churchy words like covenant, let me explain to you the difference between a covenant and, say, a contract. I think that's the easiest comparison we have. A contract is, is you and I agreeing on some terms. I will buy this land from you, and I'll give you X amount of dollars, you'll give me the land. A contract says, if I don't give you that amount of dollars, you don't give me the land, and it's just broken, and it's off. Or if you don't give me the land, I don't pay you the money, and it's broken, and it's off. One person backs out, the whole thing is wiped away. Covenant doesn't work that way. The word covenant comes from the, the root word to mean to cut. And, and in the ancient Bible times, when they made covenants, they would literally cut themselves as symbols. As a matter of fact, Fast forward to Genesis 15, not here, but in your own personal study, and, and read about the covenant God makes with Abraham. He literally takes animals and slices them in half as a symbol of the covenant. It's really a weird and bizarre chapter that has richness in what God wants to do for you. Because when God makes a covenant, the idea is, if you break the covenant, we both have to give our lives. And if I, make, if I break the covenant, we both have to give our lives. You see, there, there is no breaking of a covenant. If I make a covenant land purchase with you, I will give you this amount of dollars and you give me the land, and you don't give me the land, we both kill ourselves. We kill each other. It's done. Like we, there's, there's no breaking of it. Either keep it or you die. It's permanent, right? 
The, the penalties for breaking a covenant aren't just on the person who breaks it. It's on both parties. There's a lot of trust with a covenant, right? If I make a covenant with you and you don't keep your end of the deal, my life is on the line. But when God makes a covenant, he does it with just a little tweak. Matter of fact, if, if you read Genesis 15 later, you'll find this tweak. It, it's really an amazing scene where God makes a covenant with Abraham. It's the same method for him making every covenant. They lay the split animals out. And, and the idea was everyone involved in the covenant walks between the animals so that they say, if we don't keep our end of the deal, let us be like these animals, split in half. It's kind of a morbid but very eye-opening way of doing things. So you and I make a covenant together. We walk through that split animal together. Let me be like this animal if I don't keep my word. But in Genesis 15, in every covenant that God has ever made with man, there's a deal. You do this, I do this. You be faithful, I will save. But in Genesis 15, instead of Abraham and God both passing through, Abraham gets put asleep and he sits to the side. And it's only the presence of God that passes through. What God is saying is, if I, God, break this covenant, let me be crucified for it. And if you, Abraham, or you sitting here this morning, break the covenant, let me, God, be crucified for it. See, God takes all the punishment for the broken covenant. God says, even if you don't keep it, let me pay the penalty. Let me be the one to take it. A covenant cannot be broken without a reckoning, without, without the death of the people involved in the covenant. And God says, let me bear all of the responsibility for whoever breaks it. I tell you, God doesn't break his covenant promise. But you and I fail every single day. God knows our hearts are evil from our youth, and yet he still says, I'll take that punishment. I'll make a covenant with you. I value you so much. I care about you so much that I'll put my life on the line so that you can be redeemed and brought into a right relationship with me. God offers this covenant and this sign, this rainbow, is a reminder of his continued mercy. This promise to Noah that you're wicked and you're evil, but I've got purpose for you. If you would just simply, simply yield your life. The truth is, Noah's not the one. You can read on in, in chapter 9. We're not going to this morning, but you go ahead and in your Genesis 15, also read the rest of Genesis 9 and 10 and 11 as far as you want, but you find very quickly after this, Noah's in a really embarrassing situation where he just gets plastered, drunk. He passes out, and he's naked. It's just really strange and embarrassing story where his sons are trying to figure out what to do with their naked dad they found. I mean, this is not like Bible story flannel graph stuff. I've never seen a naked drunk Noah on the flannel graph board, right? It's just not there. But Noah's a human being. He does embarrassing, sinful, wicked things. I tell you, there's not a single person in the Bible that you read about, except for Jesus Christ, who doesn't do embarrassing, sinful, wicked things. They're there for this reason, to remind you that you're Noah, you're Abraham, you're Adam and Eve, you're Cain, you're Abel. You fall, your heart is wicked, it's deceitful, but God created you with purpose. 
God gave you a meaning because he puts his image in you. And God's goal and desire is to redeem you, to bear his image, to faithfully serve him, and to love you for all of eternity. And guess what? When you fail, God will take the punishment for you. You just need to be willing to make the sacrifice. You just need to put your own sin on the burnt offering this morning. Say, God, I, I need forgiveness. I failed you yesterday, failed you today, and I'm going to fail you tomorrow. So I, but I need to give it to you. God gives Noah a sign, a reminder, a rainbow in the sky. Is a promise it'll never flood the earth again. But can I tell you, it's more than that. We don't look to the sky and see a rainbow and think, oh good, it's, it's not going to flood. We look to the sky and say, I'm deserving of a flood and of death, and God has withheld it from me. God loves me immensely and wants me to know him. God wants me to love him. God wants me to spend eternity with him. And, and that rainbow in the sky is a reminder that God sent his son, Jesus Christ. The one that Noah could not be. The one that Seth could not be. The one that Cain and Abel could not be. Jesus Christ was. God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for the forgiveness of your sins. This morning, the Noahic covenant is the same covenant God wants to make with you. Will you trust me? God says, will you follow me and just do what I created you to do? Would you confess your sins? knowing that, that you're wicked and fallen and say, God, I don't want to live that way anymore. W would you re repent and say, God, I lay it on the burnt offering to you. And would you trust and follow what God has created you to be through his word? Let's pray together. Father, you are, you're good. In every way, you are good. And so this morning, as we, we come before you, we recognize the world around us feels like judgment and chaos and sin. And we look at our own hearts and we say, we're broken in the shell of the people you created us to be. Or the sin we have in our lives. Or we beat ourselves up with and we just, we can't imagine you ever using us. And yet God, there's nothing too dirty that you can't make worthy. Father, I pray this morning that we would lay our sins on the altar, the sacrifice to you. Say, God, I don't want to live that way any longer. I want to be restored to the image. I want to be redeemed to how you created me to be. Father, I thank you for the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, and I pray this morning that we would examine our own hearts and say, God, I need you. Father, we ask that you would enter into a covenant relationship with us, one that will never end and never be broken because you never fail, because you already paid for our deficit, because you already have accomplished everything there is to accomplish. Lord, let us, let us trust you. Let us offer our sins and our lives to you this morning. It's in your name we pray. Amen.